Welcome to the Interest in Health and Safety podcast, making health and safety as important as everything else we do in business. Hi, it's Colin here, and welcome to the Interest in Health and Safety podcast. I've got a really interesting guest, a guy called Philip Tracy. Philip's a solicitor advocate based in London, but uh, you know the practice he works for go all over the uh, all over the UK, further afield than that. I first worked with Philip uh, quite a few years ago when we had a, a fatality down in Kent for the company that I worked for. And Philip was, was fantastic. He, he helped us through the process. He, he helped us basically deal with a really, really difficult, awkward, horrible situation. And let's be straight here, it was never as bad for us as it was for the, for the family of the deceased. But it, it was a tough time and... And he helped us work through the process, trying to get ourselves to a position where we understood what happened, but but also tried to, to, you know, where possible, hold the company to account, but also protect the company as well. It was a challenging but interesting time. And I've stayed in, in, in contact with, with Philip, um, you know, it's nearly 20 years ago that incident happened. And um, I asked him to if he'd come on and uh, you know and spend a bit of time just having a having a chat with us about uh, you know about his career and the things that he's done. And what we're going to talk a bit about is, is it's good, you know, we're going to talk a bit about about legal privilege and sentencing guidelines and and I speak what to do once an incident's happened. And that is really fundamental. And he's going to give you some great advice um, on what to do when the incidents happen, but then also starting to talk a little bit about how the uh, how the incident gets investigated. Anyway, um, that's in the first part. Um, I'll introduce part two um, next week because um, we start talking a bit more about corporate manslaughter and challenging the legal system and other bits and pieces. Um, but this week, let's get involved. Let's uh, let's listen to Philip, and uh, I'll be back. Uh, I'll be back at the end of the, uh, the recording. I really appreciate Philip, you, you taking the time to come no, and uh, no, come and have Can you just tell us a little bit about who you are, who you work for, what your company does? Yeah. Uh, well, my name is Philip Tracy. I'm a qualified solicitor advocate, and I work as a, I'm a partner in the firm of Plexus Legal LLP. I've been practicing in the field of health and safety law and insurance law for now 25 years plus. Mm-hmm. And I've seen how health and safety in particular and the approach by the regulator has changed over that time. My role is defending those that are facing either an investigation or prosecution by the health and safety regulator, which would be either the health and safety executive or the environmental health departments. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, the police in relation to fatal accidents and uh, potential Manslaughter or corporate manslaughter charges. Okay, okay. And tell me, what sort of size is the uh, is the company here? How big uh, how big a setup is it? The law firm that I yeah, work for. Yeah. It's a business. It's about a sixty million pound turnover. Mm-hmm. With, of course, the kind always seems to change, but just under I think between nine hundred thousand staff. Okay. Uh, based in four locations throughout the UK. In fact, that's. That's incorrect immediately because we've just taken on two new locations. So we're now six locations okay, gotcha. within the UK. We've got two new offices opened uh, in the last month mm-hmm. in Chelmsford and Taunton, giving us some southwest coverage. It's primarily a defendant insurance practice mm-hmm. uh, and uh, giving advice to those who are facing either insurance claims or health and safety and regulatory investigations. 
I mean, we've um, I mean, we've known each other for for, for quite a few years now, yes. and uh, I must admit, it's it's um, invaluable the help that you uh, you gave myself you and, the, and the company that I work for when uh, when we were going through through difficult times. Because yes. that tends to be when you sort of interact with your clients then when they're going through difficult times. Yes, I mean, it's a sad reality of my job that when I turn up, it's not usually that something has gone well. Mm. It's usually something has gone wrong and sometimes very badly wrong, and there are. There's a crisis to be managed, and sadly there may be, you know, not just those who've been seriously injured, but those who have been killed. And you've got to help the client through that. It's important as I, you know, got a bit more experience and older, it's not just about the law. Mm. And just talking about the law isn't going to help in those situations. You've got to bear in mind that invariably it's a colleague that has either been hurt or killed. And that is going to be have, you know, not, it's not just shocking generally but those directly involved will have lost somebody that they've worked with probably for a long time Mm -hmm. and you've got to be very mindful of that human impact particularly in those early moments early days and weeks that you've got to get them through that whilst at the same time protecting the interests of the business both from the regulator and to some extent the media interest, which inevitably follows mm-hmm. uh, an organisation, well, particularly the larger organisations which go through this. So it, it's it's a difficult time for them and uh, you've got to be prepared for that. And the lawyer's got to be prepared for that going out there. It's not just turning up to say, oh, you shouldn't have done this, you shouldn't have done that. That's a disaster. Mm. You know, that's adding to the problem. It's it's trying to work with them to get through it. So what's, um, I mean, how, how sort of, Quickly after um, after an incident's happened, would do you get involved, or, or do you feel you should get involved? As a lawyer, you can say never. It's never too quickly to get involved. Mm-hmm. You know, I can find myself getting instructed within hours of an incident to get down to the scene, or usually it's within days. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, sadly, it could be weeks or months afterwards, which is too late. Yeah. The earlier you can get involved to try and manage the uh, an assistant managing the um, incident and, and and whatever crisis, the better. Because as I said, not not only is there the turmoil of the incident and all sorts of regulators or police calling for interviews, you've got to try and control the evidence and the the risk of individuals who are may not be thinking straight may still be in shock that. They're just saying things without thinking through the consequences mm. or or leaping to conclusions. That's the biggest danger mm. in an incident, whether it's a you know a nut coming off a wheel or a huge fire that we see in London. The leaping to conclusions is the biggest risk mm-hmm. uh, and indeed being open to suggestions by those conducting the interviews that oh this must have happened because. And the temptation to say, oh, yes, that must be right. Mm. We'll start doing that mm-hmm. again. Or we'll start making changes to make sure it doesn't happen again. If you don't make the right changes, you'll end up spending an awful lot of money, which will be wasted. So you're really at those early moments, effectively trying to buy some time so that people can have time to reflect and think about it, and indeed review documents mm. rather than just leaping in. And that takes quite a bit of doing. It's not, it's not easy for the individuals, and it's not easy for the lawyer. But that, that's 
I think that's, that's, that's probably one of the uh, most important lessons that I've learned from working with you. And it was a few years ago when we, uh, yes. you know, when we were when we were working together. But it was about I can remember when I, um, you know, when I used to do accident reports and stuff like that. You know, initially when I first started out in my career, the recommendations and improvements was the was the bit you were trying to fill up and you know yeah. and, and demonstrate that you looked at absolutely everything. Where in actual fact, it's I think it's really important that the the recommendations and conclusions are, are relevant to to what's happened. And they don't go wide of that mark. Yeah, in fact, that's a very good point, Colin, that most companies, particularly the larger companies, they will have set procedures in place set out in their health and safety policy uh, systems that they will conduct an investigation. Uh, they will look to see improve. And the, the, the boxes sort of that you're filling in can almost take you down a route of, oh, well, I must have to make changes. Mm. And... That might be a consequence that has to be looked at after any incident like this, of course, but that the the initial reports should always be interim Mm -hmm. and marked accordingly that, um, or it may be too early to make any Mm -hmm. recommendations at this stage because we might need to carry out further investigations or in particular we might need to take expert evidence, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, expert assistance, whether it's from engineers or external health and safety advisors. Mm -hmm. I know and I recall talking to you many times and to those that you worked with about, no, don't say that. (laughs) And, you know, I don't want to get people thinking that it's, oh, that's the lawyers interfering and tying you up in knots so that you can't actually run your business. You've got to do it in such a way that the main thing is you've still got to get on and run your business and run it in a way that it's health and safe. Mm -hmm. But mindful that you've got to protect the interests of the business as well. And, as all things, there's a fine line to getting that right. But that's where we try and help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we shouldn't be hindering. But at the same time, just being clear that if you don't know something, mm. don't guess at it. Yeah, that's right. Don't just, oh, well, I'll put this down because it might look good. You know, or mm. that's, that's the sort of things I say, no, no, no. <laughs> right. Let's take some time. Yeah, definitely. You, you sort of just touched on something there about... Um, almost like protecting the investigation. You, and, and I'm, I'm sort of thinking in my mind there, the, the sort of legal privilege side. Can you, can you sort of explain a little bit about, about what that means and how it works? I mean, legal privilege, particularly in the context of an incident, there, there can be... I mean, it's quite a complex area in certain respects, but for the purposes of, a, of potential litigation, if there's going to be either a criminal investigation or a potential civil claim, it's very important that the company gets the protection of legal privilege, which is effectively there (coughs) that any documents or investigations being carried out are being carried out in contemplation or primarily in contemplation Mm -hmm. of potential legal proceedings and therefore any material produced under that investigation does not have to be disclosed outside the company unless the company wishes to do so. Mm-hmm. So that gives you the comfort of carrying out an investigation in conjunction with your legal advisors so that you can explore and ensure that it's a full and proper investigation, that you're getting to the right facts. And then any report produced, you know, has been tested, sense-tested, that, it, that it, you've identified the relevant facts, identified as far as you can, what may have been the cause or not the cause of the accident, and therefore it should be a robust document in terms of your conclusions, should you wish to disclose it. Again, you don't have to, the company doesn't have to, unless it wishes to do so. Equally, if it 
is a report which concludes that there were significant failings and remedial action needs to be taken. There's nothing to stop you from doing that, but then you don't have to disclose those findings to the outside world. You would then Mm -hmm. conduct your case accordingly, which may be, of course, an early indication that you'll be pleading guilty to any criminal offence or any admission so that the document then doesn't have to be disclosed because it's then no longer relevant Mm -hmm. because you've accepted or the company has accepted that there were failings and you're going to proceed accordingly. Mm -hmm. But that issue of legal privilege is the reason why I get instructed Mm. from day one, if possible, to put that. And I know we've had many discussions and I had to then explain it to your board Mm -hmm. on occasions. This is why we're doing it because at the time we met uh, initially, Colin, you know, particularly, you know, any PLC or large organisation will have a fairly defined accident investigation procedure and that all has to be managed quite carefully with the director or directors who have responsibility for that mm-hmm. so that we are satisfied or the company can be satisfied that it's able to explore things fully without the fear that it's all going to be disclosed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in due course. Okay. Um, yeah. okay. Um, in the last uh, couple of years, there's been um, there's been some changes to sentencing guidelines. Yes. Yeah. Have, have you seen a difference in the way that um, businesses conduct themselves as a result of that? Do you think people know about it well enough, even? Yeah, I think businesses now are quite alive to the sentencing guidelines. Uh, and I would even say that that has gone right down, so not just the, the large or the... Uh, very large organisations, but even the micro-organisations, which I deal with quite a bit as well. They, they, they you know, your, your small company with, maybe it's only the one managing director or the, as the board of directors in effect, but they are aware when I go out and see them and say, oh, I've seen something about sentencing. And it's quite scary for them. Mm-hmm. The change that I, I've seen, particularly really coming from 2007 with the Corporate Manslaughter Act and then the sentencing guidelines all coming in on the back of that is that, of course, the big organisations, the large organisations who are facing now very significant fines and well into seven figures, um, they're usually able to look after themselves. They've got lots of people who are designated dealing with with any sort of crisis. Uh, It's the smaller, either medium-sized or micro-businesses that this is a tremendous shock to them. And they're just not capable of dealing with a potential investigation and the f- level of fine is very frightening for them. I've seen businesses fold where just because they, the management has, thinks this is all too much. I didn't get in to conducting this business thinking mm. I was going to go to jail. Mm. And you do have to manage them through that. Although we read a lot about the very large fines and fines have gone up and, and actually, to be fair, gone up significantly. There's still a long way to go before you say you're going to be facing a, a, a very significant fine. There's lots of factors go into how a fine or sentence ultimately gets gets imposed or determined. Mm-hmm. But they've had an impact. <coughs> I think they, they've sent a message. My, my only concern about them, and I was at a, a, a talk recently by the Sentencing Guidelines Council, is that the primary aim of these approaches is to drive home the message to the large organisations, it seems, but it's the smaller businesses that are feeling the impact of it. Mm. And it's those fines on the smaller businesses where, you know, 
going, you know, fines going up from 10, 20, 30,000 pounds to 100, 150, 200,000 for the smaller type business. That's a significant impact. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, one of the points I, I raised there is that, you know, yes, the fines have gone up, but I'd like to see a correlation, which we, they weren't able to provide at the time, between those companies that get fined at that level now and how many of them are still in business mm. after the fine. Because do, do courts, um, do they sort of take that into account, the ongoing run of the business? Because obviously if a business goes bust, it, it affects a lot, or it can affect a lot of people. They do take it into account. It's one of the factors, and often one of the important factors, is the ability to pay. Can you afford, can the business afford to pay mm. a fine? Courts will look at the company's accounts over the last, probably the last three years. And, uh, you know, as long as the organisation is a, you know, to use a, a, a phrase, of good character, mm-hmm. it's not out having accidents and maiming or killing people on a regular basis, it's, it's, then the court will say, well, you shouldn't be in business. Mm. But if it's of good character, and invariably this is a, a, a one-off incident, uh, then the court will not want to fine a business to such an extent that it goes out of business. Mm. But even modest increases can make a difference to a business. And to be fair, you can ask the court now, and the court's more, <coughs> more amenable to time, time to pay okay. or paying in instalments. Mm-hmm. And then there's a balance to be struck there, though, as to whether it's, it's still got to cause some pain to the business because it is a penalty, it is a, it is a punishment. Mm-hmm. So it can't be too easy if you say, oh, I can pay it over 10 years. Then, yeah. well, that's not really a punishment. Mm-hmm. So the, but the court, you can make all those points and the court will take them into account in the right circumstances, but will want to impose an appropriate penalty mm-hmm. for the harm that is caused. But I, I still think it's, it's disproportionate mm. to the impact it has on smaller, medium-sized businesses and the impact it has. And I'm not trying to take away from the tragedy that may have occurred to the family involved, but nevertheless, tragedy upon tragedy doesn't always lead to a successful outcome for mm-hmm. anyone. And uh, I would like to see more recognition that um, smaller and medium-sized businesses really need more support around that if, if they find themselves in these situations. I've very rarely come across situations where any accident is a result of either cost-cutting or any deliberate behaviour. It's... it's mm-hmm. Something has gone wrong, unfortunately, yes, mm-hmm. but it's not intentional on anybody's part. Mm. Those situations where there's been really poor behaviour are, are in my in experience, I've had few and, few and far between. Yeah, quite a few episodes I'm doing on the podcast and quite a lot of reading that I'm doing around, uh, around the topic um, is about human performance and, and the fact that humans, people make mistakes. And I think the, the important thing for businesses to try and do is to, is to try and get systems in place that are robust so that if a mistake happens then it doesn't end up in a serious injury or fatality. So do you try and work proactively with any of your clients at all? We always uh, look to work and see if, you know, are there courses, seminars we can run to go through work and particularly um, examples and studies of what have happened before, learning from those. Mm -hmm. Say, look, if you find yourself in this position, this is what you want to do. But the most important thing, I think, is the culture of the business because... One of the other oddities or perhaps perversities of the higher profile of health and safety and the attention to paperwork and systems is that that, I don't think that necessarily avoids the problem. 
Okay. You can get a lot of organizations say, well, look at this, I've got paperwork coming out my ears now. Mm-hmm. Look at all these files of risk assessments. Mm. But they've not actually risk assessed. Mm. And that really comes from the, having a, the culture in the business from top down, mm-hmm. that it isn't just about ticking boxes. And in fact, if you're just going to do that, you're going to end up in the same position anyway. Mm-hmm. But it's given in a due regard and that the health and safety managers or the health and safety environment, environment managers feel that they've got the support and authority mm. to drive change. But it's not just for the health and safety manager. You've got to get all the managers, be it production, be it operations, be it HR, all of them buying into it. And the best work groups that we've done and work studies that we've done is where we get all the relevant sections of the company in so we can talk about the impact on each section mm-hmm. and how they all fit together mm-hmm. to actually drive the culture. And in fact, I remember speaking to, uh, to one of your directors when we were dealing with some of these issues that he made a great point that if he was walking past and he saw, he, in fact, he was, coming in to, he was coming in to talk to me mm-hmm. and he happened to walk past something that he saw out in the um, yard or whatever. And he w- w- went over and said, no, again, stop. Mm. You know, that's not the way to be doing things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want you to go away. And I thought that's, you know, he was leading by example. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, having um, having the confidence to, to go and stop is important. But I, I also think um, that maybe one of the things that that manager should have been doing was actually uh, looking more closely at the job before it started and having actually having the confidence to allow it to start in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's something that, we, that, that you know, we tend to react quite a bit. You mentioned there about um, you know sort of about risk assessments and and safe systems of work and all that kind of stuff and um, and I've seen a, a lot of people that you know say well, you know is the safe system of work available you know and it is okay well I'd actually say is the safe system of work followable so what we've written down does it actually mean anything you know is it any good Yeah and in fact that's a good point about making sure that you're not just going through a paper exercise mm. because you've got to think through operationally, and this is why there has to be a connection between whoever is drafting the risk assessment and whoever is doing the work. Because mm. I do the number of times I see this is how we're going to do it, and then I talk to the guys after the event and say, well, we couldn't do it that way. Mm. So you're actually creating a rod for your own back by going through, a, a, you know, sitting in the office producing a piece of paper without necessarily going out on site. Mm. And looking around to say, well, what, you know, what are we moving or what are we doing, mm-hmm. and how is that going to be done? And that's why I say there has to be a very close working relationship and liaison between those doing the work and managing it, and those who are supporting them on the health and safety side. The two should be going hand in hand mm-hmm. and regular dialogue, and not working along in parallel lines where they're never going to meet. Mm. Yeah, no, good, great, great point. So let's go back to something's gone wrong, okay? You know, and, okay, so and we, you've got this problem. What things should a business do Im- immediately after the event has happened? What, what, what in your opinion, would be uh, would be some good advice to give people? Well, the first thing is is to appoint one person in the business to try and coordinate responses, so that there's you don't have two or three or four. Now there may be two or three or four people involved communicating, but there's only one point of contact to manage the incident and that will manage both dealing with the external regulator initially dealing with reporting up to the board or if, if it is a board director that person is responsible for those for the, the 
funneling of information. Mm-hmm. Then you've got to start appointing your advisors. You do want your lawyers on board. If you've got health and safety consultants, they, you want them on board, but appointed by the lawyers to take into account my point about legal privilege yep. earlier. And you do need to notify your insurers that there's been an incident because they will be able to provide you with support. Mm-hmm. You know, I often hear and uh, that oh, we, the insurers get in the way or the insurers. That's not my experience. The insurers are there to help mm-hmm. if they're appointed early enough. And the insurance lawyers generally are, have got, you know, it may be one-off incident for the business, for the insurance company, they do it all the time. Yeah. They are there to help. They've got lots of experience. And therefore, whilst, of course, they will be interested in what it means for them, because they may have to deal with the cost of it, but they can provide real assistance and you should be able to work with you very early on. So I would certainly recommend that you notify your insurers earlier and as early as possible because they will have a team of people that if you don't have them, they will be able to say, look, we've got the right people for you Mm -hmm. to start assisting and helping you manage. And that's putting you at the same time you're dealing with the investigation, whether it's police, is not jumping to conclusions, Mm -hmm. not immediately volunteering opinions or assumptions as to what might have happened, Mm -hmm. but more listening to what you're being asked for, if material is available, saying, yes, I'll see what I can do about that, Mm. and taking stock before rushing in to decide, and not necessarily agreeing with what has been put to you by the regulator, oh, this must have gone wrong, or this isn't right. Mm -hmm. You may need to listen to all of that and then take stock. Mm. So, But the, the really crucial thing is not jump into conclusions. It's quite difficult for a manager who's a colleague has been seriously injured or killed to have the confidence to, to push back at the regulator. Whereas, you know, I think probably getting somebody in your position or an insurance company or whatever to come in, it just takes a lot of that pressure off, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the for any middle manager, senior manager, any manager, at that point of time, the ability for them to think clearly and without pressure is almost zero. Mm. They will be under considerable pressure. They'll be worried, not only that there's been a terrible accident, but also their personal circumstances. They will be worried about that. It's, that's just natural, I'm afraid. Uh, having external people coming in and acting as a buffer and taking, in effect, that flack off the manager so that you can focus on, again, one, trying to sort out whatever support needs to be given to the injured injured individuals, but also that the business can then carry on as best it can at the same time, because others are also affected. Mm. And the external advisor should be able to do that, to effectively take that off the manager, Mm -hmm. start dealing with the regulators, and buying time. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, and it's not buying time to think, oh, well, what can we say? It's to, so that people can properly reflect. I think that's invaluable, and that's where I try and make the immediate difference mm. that we're able to, and, and you're trying to calm people down. Yeah. Whilst at some stage carrying a large stick to keep the regulator away from you. Mm-hmm. And it's getting that balance right. Generally speaking, I mean, um, how do you, I think you might not be able to answer this because it might just be so varied, but how do you find the regulators? Do you find them generally supportive or are they, are they, are they generally quite, uh, quite aggressive or does it just change from, from event to event. To be fair, it can depend, and I'll be giving away too many trade secrets now if I, <laughs> if I, start, uh, if I start going too far. Okay. 
What I always say to clients is when you're dealing with the regulator, the health and safety executive, the environmental health, I'll mention those in, in a moment, that they are the police in this mm. situation. Mm. And you should think of them accordingly. They are investigating a crime and they will take action if they think a crime has been committed. That's what they're there for and that's what they're entitled to do. And the friendlier they are to you, the more careful you should be. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Right, the yeah. nicer they are being to you, yeah. the more your antenna should be going up. Right. That I need to be careful what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And that's at any stage. And, and there's no such thing... In the same way with the police, there's no such thing as an informal conversation with the police. Mm. There's no such thing as an informal conversation. Mm. Now, it's informal in the sense that any evidence that they want to rely upon needs to be in a certain form. Mm-hmm. But anything you say, they'll be, you, you've, we've all seen them, they've got their notebook out, they're taking notes. That can then all be converted to be used to their advantage. And that, of course, that's at a time when they are carrying out an investigation. Generally, I would say the health and safety executive, in my experience, they are fair. Mm. They will do their job. That's what they're there for. But they, they, they are fair. And I always encourage businesses to have a, you know, a good and healthy working relationship with the health and safety executive. <coughs> but bear in mind that they are your regulator. And if mm. they th- think that you're not doing things right, usually, again, provided there hasn't been a serious incident, if the inspector turns up, with one of his unannounced visits, mm-hmm. and he sees things that he's, he or she is not happy with, they'll give you a bit of time. And they'll say, look, I'd like this sorted, this sorted. I'll come back in three weeks, and hopefully you'll have done it. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you have, it, it's always, just because the HSE says he doesn't like it, you've still got to give it a bit of thought, well, do I accept that criticism? Mm-hmm. Do I, is there changes, or are there changes I need to make? Or... Um, do I need to explain to him why I, why I do do it this way and why I do consider it to be safe? Mm. But of course, if he, if an inspector comes out and has that quiet word and it is correct that things need to be changed, then change them. Mm. And if you work with them, you know you should avoid mm. the awful incident, and you certainly don't want to be meeting them for the first time when they've turned up and there's been a, a tragedy, particularly if they've warned you before. But overall, I, I think that I find the, uh, the the health and safety executive to be fair. When they're carrying out an investigation, we have a confrontational relationship because mm. they will want all sorts of things immediately. And I will be saying, well, you're not entitled to this or you're not entitled to that or uh, you need to conduct a particular interview pursuant to your powers under the Health and Safety Work Act rather than a voluntary statement, for example. Mm. Uh, and we have had some feisty words <laughs> over the years and yeah. I've been called certain things I'm sure by the health and safety executive mm. and um, that will probably continue because their role is, is different from my role So what did you think about that? I found it really interesting, really fascinating and we're only halfway through this whole concept of, of getting legal support into your business as soon as you possibly ha- can Getting the insurance company involved as soon as you possibly can just helps you through the process. That's the takeaways, I think, from this uh, from this episode. You know, what you do, when the incidents happen, the difficult time you're going to go through. It's just really important that you, you take stock, 
Don't be ra rash. It's very, very easy to, you know, to be taken down a particular line, taken down a particular avenue when you're under pressure. And and I think, you know, getting somebody, you know, of, of Philip's calibre into the team to, to help support the people in the business is just vital. You know, so I hope you got something out of that uh, at the first half. We've split the um, the episode down into two halves, so maybe you can go back and revisit it. Next week, we're going to be talking a bit um, more um, on the, the accident investigation process, but getting talking about how the environmental health maybe um, get involved, some personal prosecution. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, the corporate manslaughter, where that fits in, and and also some of the things that uh, you know that, that that Philip in his role, you know, is doing about about sort of challenging the legal system a little bit, maybe pushing back. You know, talks a little bit about maybe where health and safety might start to go outside of the workplace into people in the clubs and academies, things like that. And, um, you know, that's quite a, quite a potentially, a, you know, a, real, a really different and challenging time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And, uh, you know, please tune in again next week when we'll, uh, we'll have the second part of uh, the interview with Philip. Thank you very much. So Plexus Law have just asked us to put a little uh, disclaimer on this podcast. Whilst we take care to ensure that the material in this podcast is correct, it is made available for information only and no representation is given as to its quality, accuracy, fitness for purpose, or usefulness. In particular, the contents of this podcast do not give specific legal advice, should not be relied on as doing so, and are not substitute for specific advice relevant to a particular circumstances. Plexus Law accepts no responsibility for any loss which may arise from reliance on information or materials published in this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Interest in Health and Safety podcast. You can follow and engage on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching the Interesting Health and Safety Community or go to www.influentialmg.com. And remember, let's make health and safety as important as everything else we do in business.